Welcome to the teaching ministry of Christ Church of the Valley, featuring lead pastor Kevin Carlson. Today, we invite you to open your heart and your mind to what God is saying to you through His Word. We're glad you decided to listen in with us. Here now is Pastor Kevin. Sunday morning, Katrina had built into a dangerous Category 5 hurricane barreling towards New Orleans. On August 29, Hurricane Katrina slammed into the Gulf Coast. The world watched as the levees surrounding New Orleans failed, flooding the city, leaving tens of thousands stranded and more than a thousand dead. There is absolutely nothing here. We advise people that this city has been destroyed. Criticism of state and federal officials for the levee failures and botched emergency response was all over the news. But another story was beginning. We will do what it takes. We will stay as long as it takes to help citizens rebuild their communities and their lives. I remember thinking we have the best opportunity to rebuild this city as one of the greatest cities in America. Katrina launched one of the largest housing rebuilding programs in U.S. history, and the outcome has loomed over every disaster since. This is our Katrina. But what have we learned? In 1718, a guy named Jean-Baptiste Le Moyne de Bienville was attracted to a little bend of the Mississippi River where he thought it would make a great spot for a town. He mistakenly thought that the land was protected from the tide and the water by uh, natural barriers, which proved to be quite wrong, because four years later, a hurricane came through and wiped the city out. Rather than simply relocate to higher ground, what most sensible people would do, they decided to rebuild. And 100 years later, New Orleans was the largest city in the South. Then Katrina hit. 80% of the town uh, was underwater after a few days. More than 1,200 people died. But the economic damage was just staggering. The city lost more than 90,000 jobs. Three billion in wages disappeared overnight. A city already in decline had suffered perhaps the worst natural disaster in American history. Now, it wasn't just the infrastructure of the, of the city that was destroyed. It was things like schools as well. And the schools in New Orleans had been failing for years, despite all the money that was poured into them and all the efforts to try to improve it. Uh, students, especially poor students in New Orleans, had a horrible track record of performance. Less than half of the kids were performing at grade level. But the storm, by sort of wiping the slate clean, uh, allowed room for innovation to grow. And today in New Orleans, 96% of kids are performing at grade level or better because of the educational reforms and innovations that are being tried in New Orleans today, successfully. This is a city that really needed a comeback. And they experienced several keys that allowed them to come back as a city. We're talking in this series about coming back and what it means to come back in life when you're down and you need to turn things around. How do I come back? And we're looking at stories from the life of Jesus where he raised people from the dead, the ultimate act of comeback. And today we have the last, the fourth and final story that we'll be looking at. It's found in Mark chapter five. So open your Bibles up to Mark chapter five. If you have a smartphone, 
Uh, make sure you have the YouVersion app on here. It's a free Bible app, and you can use it to always look up scriptures and follow along. Uh, also on here, we have a thing called events that you'll find uh, on YouVersion, uh, and it'll have all the slides that we're using this morning and the announcements, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you can save it to share with other people later and, and use that uh, as well. So have that events uh, loaded up, and you can follow along in Mark chapter 5. Now, Mark 5 is interesting because it's really two stories. It's a main story that has a secondary story inside of it, wrapped around this main story. And at first, it seems like they're sort of different stories. Why are these included together here? But as we read, we discover they both talk about the key to come back. That's what they have in common, and that's why Mark places them both here uh, side by side. In fact, he shows us four keys to come back. And the first key is this that we see in this story. It's to plead. To plead. Verse 22 a guy named Jairus, his daughter is really sick. Uh, so he goes to Jesus. He saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said, please come and lay your hands on her and heal her so she can live. I looked up in uh, my Bible study app uh, the different translations that are used for this word pleading just to get an idea of, of what this guy is doing here. And here's what I came up with. Asked, besought greatly, begged earnestly, kept on begging, implored, and called upon him much. The idea is that the man is asking powerfully. This isn't just sort of an offhand kind of, eh, either way, it doesn't really matter all that much to me. No, this is, he's very powerful in his ask here. And he's asking repeatedly. That's what pleading is. It's not just I mention it once and then never talk about it again. I'm going to keep coming back and back and back because it's really important to me. We've got a couple of dogs at home, and uh, they're Puggles, which is a, a sort of ornamental breed, half Pug and half Beagle. And uh, they're one step up from uh, wild dogs. They're dingoes, basically, because uh, we haven't been very good at training them. But the one trick we've trained them to do is to sit. And the way, you know, way we did this is you have a little treat thing. If they do it, you give them a little treat, this kind of stuff. Well, but here's where it goes wrong, right? They, they learn that if I sit, I get a treat. So pretty soon, these dogs, they're doing this all the time, you know? They're sitting everywhere expecting a treat. And, and if they don't get the treat, then they start beep, 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 yipping and whining, you know, wanting that treat. Look, I am sitting, and after sitting comes treat. Where is the treat? Whine, 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 whine. And so then you're forced with the dilemma, aren't you? You're faced with this dilemma. I can give them the treat, and I know that will stop the whining. They will instantly shut up and sit down and go do other things. But what does that do? That reinforces, if you want a treat, just be irritating, and I will give you a treat. So I don't want to give them a treat. So then they're irritating. And so it's sort of a tug of war, you know, between my endurance and their hunger. And guess which one almost always wins? There's a little hunger there. In fact, this is what's a little maddening about it is most, you know, you're trying to resist and so you resist, but then sometimes you break down and give in to them. Uh, scientists, when they're doing animal studies, like those little rats that'll press a pellet to get a treat, what they found is that the most effective way to train the rat to press the bar isn't to give them a treat every time or to never give them a treat, it's to give them a treat sometimes. If the rat sometimes gets a treat when he presses the bar, he will press that bar like nobody's business to get that. So that's what I've done with my dogs. I've trained them that sometimes they get a treat, so wind your heads off. That's the most effective strategy there. It happens with kids, too. Anyone who's had little kids know how this works. Kids are natural-born gamblers. I don't know. It worked once. Maybe it'll work again. 
Nine times out of 10, dad says, no, but hey, let's roll the dice and see how it goes. And the most irritating behaviors that you wish you could extinguish, you end up reinforcing because you sometimes answer them and, and sometimes you don't. Well, in this story here, what Jesus is telling us is, is if we want to come back, we got to be persistent about it. Not just do a one-off kind of thing, but keep going after it. In fact, Jesus in another place told a story about an unjust judge. There's a widow who needs justice. And the judge is corrupt and crooked and doesn't care about people and doesn't care about the law. And she's knocking on his door, begging for justice. And she keeps after it and keeps after it. And finally the judge says, good night. I cannot get this woman to shut up. Uh, if I give her justice, at least she'll go away and leave me alone. So is the point of the story that God's this unjust judge who really didn't want to help us, but if we irritate him enough, he will occasionally help us. That's not the story at all. What Jesus says in Luke 18 tells us the point. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off if a crooked guy will respond to repeated requests? How much more will God who loves you and wants what's best for you respond when you go to him with your needs, when you plead with him? when you need a comeback. Do you need a comeback? Well, have you taken it to God? Not just once, not just sort of eh, offhandedly, but passionately and repeatedly. God wants us to plead with him when we need a comeback. Second thing that happened in this story, not only did the guy plead, they reached, they reached out. While Jesus is on the way, another person enters the story, a woman uh, who's had a, a, an uncontrolled bleeding for 12 years. She's been bleeding for 12 years and we don't know her name, but Mark tells us two things about her. First of all, that she suffered greatly from the physicians of the day. They didn't know how to heal her, so they tried all sorts of quack stuff. You know, like uh, when George Washington was sick, they put leeches on him to bleed him because they thought that would help him, would make him worse, that kind of stuff. Well, oftentimes the doctors in Jesus' day would just make you worse instead of helping you. And that's what happened to this woman, just making her worse. And then secondly, it tells us that she had spent everything that she had looking for relief, looking for help, only to be denied. She needs a, a physical comeback. She needs a health comeback. So she reaches out to Jesus. Verse 27, she had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and, and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Now, why does she just go to him directly? Why is this touching the robe from behind kind of thing? Maybe the crowd of people was so thick she couldn't physically get there, just squirming her arm through is all she can do. But I think the real reason is because as someone who was bleeding, she was considered unclean and untouchable. And she's thinking, well, Jesus is a respectable guy. He's not gonna have anything to do with somebody like me. So maybe if I can just sneak up on him and touch him, I'll get healed by reaching out to him. You probably never heard of N.W. Ayer and Son. It's the oldest advertising agency in America. Uh, you've heard of some of their slogans, though. Be all that you can be. Who's that for? It's for the Army in 1981. That was their slogan, an Army. Uh, this one's older, 1912. Uh, when it rains, it pours. Who's that for? Morton Salt, see, 1912. Uh, this one, not that any of you have used these products, of course, but I'm sure you've seen the commercial. I'd walk a mile for a camel. That's right, a bunch of smokers in our church. There you go. Um, <laughs> How about this one? A diamond is forever. Anyone know who that one's for? It's De Beers, another diamond company, but you're on the right uh, track there. Their most uh, famous one, though, probably, at least I remember this one, is, uh, seeing this one on TV. Reach out, reach out and touch someone. Who is that for? 
AT&T. Ironically, for a product you only can use when you can't touch somebody, right? So they have this commercial, and there's this son off of college, and he's calling his mom, and they're talking with each other. She misses him, but they can stay in touch through the glories of long-distance calling. Now, for those of you younger in the audience, the long-distance landscape was quite different when AT&T made this, uh, this, this, this commercial here. First of all, it was very expensive to call somebody long-distance. Now, with cell phones and unlimited minutes, it really doesn't matter what area code they live in. I haven't changed my area code. I still have an Arizona phone number, because why? It doesn't matter. It's not like a long-distance call anymore to call somewhere, somewhere else. It's become irrelevant. Whether you call across town or call across country, it doesn't matter. But back in the day, it was really expensive. When Brent and I were out uh, dating long distance, I was in Idaho and she was in Arizona. We both regularly spent over 300 bucks a month uh, on our phone bills. It was just ridiculous how expensive it was. And the other thing was, is your, your array of choices for long distance back then was AT&T. That was it. That was the only game in town. They had a legal monopoly on long-distance service. That was the only person that you could use. In fact, they had another slogan that uh, Ayers came up with them. It says, we may be the only phone company in town, but we try not to act like it. That tells you a little problem right there, right? We know we're a monopoly. We know you have no choice. So we'll try to pretend like we care how this goes here. But this slogan, reach out and touch someone. The idea is there's an intimacy there, right? If you're close enough to touch someone physically, you're, you're, you're intimate with them. You're close to them as if you're physically right there. And that's what this woman is really looking for, is intimacy with Jesus. She's reaching out to touch him so that she can be healed. The Bible says in James 4, 8 that we're, we're, we need to do the same thing to get close to God. Come close to God, it says, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. And that's really important here to look at because this woman had tried the world's approach. The doctors, all the money that she had spent, and it had gotten her nowhere. So then she turned to God. How much better would it have been for her if she would have turned to God originally? How many of us do the same thing? We only turn to God as a last resort when nothing else works. And out of desperation, they say, well, might as well try God when what God wants us to do is to go to him first. Say, why don't you try me first instead of last and avoid all the heartache and pain that you experience by doing it your way instead of my way. So James says, look, draw near to God, but do so with an undivided heart. Reach out to him first and foremost, not as a last resort. So they're pleading, they're reaching, then they're believing. They're believing. Uh, Mark says, as soon as, as, soon as she touches uh, Jesus' robe, the bleeding stops. It says in the text there that she could feel it in her body. So obviously there was a pain that accompanied this bleeding uh, and that pain went away so she knew she was healed. But it also said that Jesus could feel the healing power leave his body. So he knew that she had been healed as well. So there's a big pile of people smashing him as he's trying to plow his way to Jairus's house. Remember, that's what the original story is, on his way to Jairus's house with his sick daughter when this woman interjects. And he stops and says, who touched me? And his disciples say, well, Jesus, there's this mob around you. Everyone's touching you. How, how can you say that? He says, no, I felt this healing power come out of me. Who touched me? And finally, the woman says, it was me. I'm the one that did it. And she told him the story here. Now, why did Jesus say that? Who touched me? You know, there are two theories here. One is that uh, he knew all along who touched him, but he wanted her to say. It's like, I, I know who touched me, but I want you to admit it here. So I'm just going to pretend like I don't know. So there's that theory. Then there's the other one that says, well, Jesus honestly didn't know. Because we know there are things that Jesus didn't know. He said, I don't know the hour of my own return. Only the Father knows that. 
the, the Bible call, talks about Jesus emptying himself, that he was equal with God, but he gave that up in order to take on human form. So he was limited in certain ways. He had to eat and sleep and everything else like we did. So, so either he knew and wasn't telling or he didn't know, but either way, the effect was the same. The reason I think Mark puts this question in there is to point out that it wasn't Jesus who took the initiative here to heal the woman. It was the woman uh, who took the initiative wanting to be healed by Jesus. And she had uh, an ingredient that was necessary for this to take place. Jesus had the power, but she had the faith. She had the faith. In verse 34, Jesus says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. It was Jesus' power, yes, that made her well, but it was her faith that unlocked this power, that unleashed this power. There are plenty of sick people in Jesus' day who weren't healed, but this woman had faith that Jesus could heal her, and it was her faith, Jesus says, that made you well. Go in peace, your suffering is over. Both this woman and Jairus have to supply that same ingredient. They have to believe that Jesus can make a difference in their lives, that Jesus can give them a better life. And if they don't believe that, all the power in the world wasn't gonna make one bit of difference in their lives. Faith is a crucial ingredient when you need to experience comeback, both as an individual and as a church as well. You know, CCV's had some tough times over the past 10 years. We've had a tough decade. Uh, and if we wanna experience better days in the future, we gotta believe that God's not done with us, that God can do great things through us, that he's building here a team that'll, that'll have a great impact on the community if we believe that God can do it. Did you know that our church has grown 35% in the last nine weeks? Just that there. Uh, our church is on the move here. God is doing things. People are coming to faith in Christ in ways we haven't seen recently. And, and God is, is, is moving in the lives of people. We can keep that up. We can keep that up if we believe that God is able to do what he asks, do what he wants to get done here. So he tells the woman that she's healed and just then someone else enters the story. Someone comes from Jairus' house and says, hey, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. It's useless for him to come here. It's too late. Uh, she's already dead. Now this is what's really interesting. Jesus turns to Jairus and says this, don't be afraid, verse 36, just have faith. He was hoping before that Jesus could do something about his daughter. Now it's a matter of faith. Do you believe that I can do the impossible? Do you believe that when it looks hopeless, that I can still provide hope in your life? See, it says in Hebrews 11, verse one, what faith is. It says, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. So Jesus is now gonna find out, does Jairus have the confidence that what he hopes for, that his daughter will be restored, can actually happen, or does he think it's impossible? Has he given up? In Hebrews eleven six, 6, it goes on to say, without faith, it's impossible to please God. We can't even please him if we don't have faith. If we don't believe that he can make a difference in our lives, it's impossible uh, to please him because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. Like 92% of Americans believe that God exists in some theoretical marginal way. That's not a very high bar to cross. And that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. That God can give me a better life. The word faith in the Bible literally means to respond. It means I have such confidence in God that I'm willing to respond to him and do what he asks of me. And Jairus says, all right, Jesus says to Jairus, I want you to believe. 
Let's just go see your daughter. I'm not going to walk away. I'm, I'm, if you can believe, I can still do something for her. And so they go on. Remember the Indiana Jones movies? You know, you won't talk about the space alien one that doesn't exist. Uh, but I remember, I love the third one with, with uh, Harrison Ford and uh, Sean Connery playing his dad. And at the end of this movie, he's got to go through these traps, you know, to find the Holy Grail. And remember the third one, what it was? It was the leap of faith. There's like this invisible bridge across this chasm. You can't see it. For him to make it across, he's just got to believe that he won't fall to his death. And so he's got to step out on that bridge. And then once he does, the bridge is revealed. It's like, okay, now I see there's a bridge across this chasm. But it was invisible until he takes that step. And that's the leap of faith he had to take. Well, Jairus is the same way. All right, do you believe that you'll see it? Because we say seeing is believing, right? See it first, then we'll believe. Faith turns that around. Believe first, and then you'll see it. And, and that's what Jairus is being asked to do. If you need a comeback in your life, you gotta believe that God can do it. And you gotta believe first before you receive it. Not say, God, you, you give me that comeback, and then I'll believe that you can do it. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, and it's impossible to unleash his comeback power in your life. The last thing Jairus did here is he received. He received. He arrives at the house and he finds mourners are gathered there. There's all these people yelling and mourning. And in Middle Eastern cultures, it's very different than our culture here. You go to a, a, a wake or a viewing at a funeral home and it's very quiet, right? That in fact, it's sort of a natural instinct. You walk into a mortuary and you hush. Walk into a graveyard, walk into a mausoleum, that kind of stuff. Hush. Just quiet. And that's what our culture believes, that you should be quiet in the presence of the morning or quiet in the presence of the dead. Well, it was the exact opposite in the Middle East. They believed that if you were quiet, if you didn't demonstrate anything, it's because you really didn't care. And so if, if you're mourning somebody, everyone's just sitting around quietly, it means the person wasn't very loved or very respected or very important. So they believe that the noisier you were in your mourning, the more loved the person was. In fact, if you had the means you would hire professional mourners who, who are known for their noisiness. They would come and they would mourn and weep and wail and, and they would make it seem like the person was really uh, well-loved there. Um, in fact, the word, this is interesting, uh, vocally, the word hallelujah, you know, people say that when you're, in the Bible when they're praising God, that actually uh, comes from this practice that they would do. When they were excited or, or cheering for something, they wouldn't go, yay! You hear this today in Bedouin cultures. When they're really excited about something, they go, la, 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 Make that noise there, you heard that? Uh, uh, we don't do that in our culture. Imagine at a funeral here, you walk in, and anyone have anything they'd like to say about the departed? La, 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 Probably wouldn't go over real well. But that lol, that noise they would do was expressing great passion. And so when you wanted to worship, you would give the law to Jehovah. And the word Yah in hallelujah is Jehovah. So hallelujah literally means to give the law to Jehovah. I am so excited. I care so passionately for God that I'm going to verbalize it and vocalize it. And I want everyone to know la, 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 that I care about God. So these people are yelling and mourning and crying, uh, whether they're relatives, families, and friends, or professional mourners that the family has brought in. Um, they're, they're making it known that they really care about this, this woman here. When Jesus says something sort of unusual, he says to the crowd there, why are you all mourning? Why are you all so worked up here? She's not dead. She's merely sleeping. And says so the crowd laughs at Jesus because they knew that the girl was dead. Now, that word sleep is often used in the New Testament to describe 
people who have died. Uh, and yet, I wonder, why that? Why do they say asleep, that this is only sleeping? When they talk about believers who have, who have gone asleep in God. Because sometimes the Bible talks as if when you die, you're sort of unconscious and you're in this sort of frozen state until the resurrection, right? They're asleep. She's merely sleeping. And sleeping implies you're going to wake up someday, but not yet. You're asleep right now. So there's their, you're sort of asleep now and you're going to wake up later. But other times, like on the thief on the cross, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul says, to live is gain, to die is Christ. If, I, if I'm dead, I'm immediately in the presence of Jesus. So how do we reconcile those two that you're asleep, but you can be with Jesus today? Well, one answer is, from our perspective, the living, the person is like they're asleep. You know, you see them there, they're not moving, it's like they're sleeping. From our perspective, they're asleep. From their perspective, they're with Jesus today. The other thing that we've got to remember is that God isn't limited by space and time like we are. For us, tomorrow always comes after today, and yesterday always precedes today. And that's the way it always is, unless you're Marty McFly and you've got a souped-up DeLorean. It's just not going to work that way. But God, of course, isn't limited like that. It says in the Bible that a day to God's like a thousand years to us. And so God can be in tomorrow and yesterday and today all at once. So if we're in the presence of God, time doesn't count, doesn't matter to us anymore. Didn't, we're not bound by that anymore. So either way, whichever explanation is correct, uh, that's what Jesus says. He clears the room and he gets his three best buddies, Peter, James, and John. He's got these 12 apostles that are all going to be uh, spreading the word about him after his resurrection. But of those 12, he's got three he's especially close to, Peter, James, and John. So oftentimes, he takes these three apart, like on the Mount of Transfiguration. Only they see it, not the other nine guys. Uh, in Gethsemane, uh, he goes to pray, asks them to pray with him, but then those three, he's further on with them uh, to be with him. So these three he takes with him into this upper room, and the parents... Uh, holding her hand in verse 41, he said to her, Talitha Kaum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They got their little girl back. Believing led to receiving. Then they received after they believed. You see, the Bible tells us that God loves to give gifts. The word grace, you talk about God's grace it literally means gift. Charis is the Greek word for gift, where we get the word charismatic. It means gifted. So we're all charismatic. We're all gifted by God. He gives us spiritual gifts. So uh, God loves to give uh, gifts to people. Uh, Philippians 3.14 says this, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Paul says, look, God wants to give me a gift. He wants to give me a prize. But for me to receive it, I've got to press on. I've got to press on. I've got to not give up. Jairus could have given up when they said, hey, your, your daughter's dead. It's all over. He could have just said, okay, oh well. Nothing more I can do. And just given up at that point. But he pressed on, didn't he? He pressed on with Jesus, even though it might have seemed like the longest of long shots. He had just a little tiny seed of faith. And that's all that Jesus asks of you. He doesn't ask of you that you have zero doubts, that you have zero hesitation. He just says, if you've got a faith the size of a, a little tiny seed that you can barely see, just that tiniest sliver of faith, that's enough for me. You don't have to have oceans of faith or buckets of faith. Just a tiny little sliver is enough for me to work with. If you've got nothing, I can't work with that. But if you've got a little tiny bit, do you need to come back? Can you muster a tiny little sliver of faith that you can receive that comeback that you need so badly if you'll turn to God 
and ask for it. Press on. Don't give up. So many people don't receive the comeback they need because they give up. They don't ask repeatedly. They don't ask passionately. They don't reach out to God. They don't turn to him first. They don't believe that he can make a difference. And so they never receive the comeback they need. But if we follow the example of the people in this story and go to the very end to press on, to not give up, to keep on believing, we can experience the same kind of comeback they did. Why? And here's the takeaway. Because God is able. The question isn't, am I able to believe? The question is, is God able to do something with my faith? That's the real question. Do we believe or not that God is able to make a difference in our lives? Or do we believe that stuff sort of died out in the Bible days and, and God is this distant landlord type of guy who he doesn't really interact with us anymore. Those days are gone. And he just sort of sits back and watches the world sort of apathetically and it really doesn't matter. He doesn't do much for people anymore. Or do we believe that he still answers prayer? That he still hears us when we call out? That he still responds to us when we need to come back? See, the Bible says God is able. And when we believe that, we're amazed. Verse 42, the parents were overwhelmed and totally amazed because they believed that God was able to do the impossible. They were overwhelmed by what they received from God. Doesn't that sound awesome to be overwhelmed by God when you're in need? That you call out for him, you need his comeback, and he answers so powerfully that you're just overwhelmed. It's more than you can handle. It's more than you can, can carry. Wouldn't that be awesome if that happened in your life? Well, do you believe that it can? So they were totally overwhelmed and amazed, amazed at how good and powerful God is. Do we believe that God has that power? Ephesians 3.20, I love this verse. I quote it all the time. All glory to God who is able through his mighty power, not ours, his power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we ask for or imagine. So when you need to come back, God is able to bring you back from the brink. Have you tried to get it elsewhere and failed? Turn to God because he is able to do what no one else can do. Have you given up hope? God is able to answer your prayer even when you lack hope, if you can just believe. Are you ready for a comeback today? God can do more, more than you ask for or imagine. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Christ Church of the Valley, which meets every Sunday at 9 and 1030 a.m. at 13701 West Stockdale Highway in Bakersfield, California. For more information, visit our website at ccvbak.com.